So, Kate, you're here to talk about the Planet of the U target novelization. Yes, indeed. How did this come to be? Well, um, I got, I'd sort of become aware that um, target books were being sort of, sort of made again of uh, present day shows. And um, last year, I read an article about um, you know a handful of books coming out, and I suddenly thought, oh, I, I wouldn't mind doing that. So, so I asked my agent if there was any chance, you know, could he get in touch with Penguin? And he came back and said, yep, they're interested. They're just looking for the next batch of Target books to novelize, and they'd be interested in chatting. So we had a conversation, and um, yes, yeah, so we, uh, we ended the meetings and with them saying, "Go, yeah, go ahead, write it. Yeah, let's sort it out. Um, I was aware that 2023 was a big year. It was the 60th anniversary of the show, it is. Um, and I'm 60 in this year as well. So lots of things sort of were coming together, and it just felt right to, to, to be doing it this year. But how did you approach the task of novelizing your own script? Did you did you go back and look at earlier drafts or? Well, eventually, but in the beginning, I wanted because novel writing is so different from TV, you know, script writing. Um, I wanted it to be a mixture of, of uh, my emotions and, and memories when I came to sit, sit down to writing it. So I didn't look at old scripts. I didn't look at old sort of story ideas. Um, or even watch it until I was sort of halfway into into the novel. And I mean, there were a couple of times I thought, oh, I've forgotten all about that. But uh, on the whole, I started off just writing, doing my own thing. What surprised you most about the process? Oh, it's it's try, it's getting into the swing of, of, of the, the prose writing more than anything. You, you know, when television script writing, it's, it's not easy. I'm going to say it's easy, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's easy in that, you know, you, you can add some description. Uh, the dialogue's the most important thing, but other things like the design of the show that, that these things are to other people. But in the novel, you have to work out how much description you're putting in at any one time. You have to work out how how far do you advance the plot in a chapter? Um, what, how how much do you describe in this in, in this chapter before the audio, the reader will get bored with it? It's constantly trying to sort of get a balance between all those things, and then suddenly. You're kind of into it, and it's and it, it's it's like a second nature. Things just take, um, I would say, the right themselves. But yeah, you you get used to that procedure. So it was it was a slow process in the beginning writing it, but it was a snowball effect that once I was into it, I, I kind of got the hang of it. Um, so yeah, I, I thought it would be easier than it was, uh, uh, and it wasn't. Were you able to reincorporate any elements that had to be removed from the original script? Yes, uh, quite a few. In the early stages of you know coming up with the story, uh, I, I did a couple of um, I suggested a couple of things that they said were just too dark. Uh, so they never made it to the to the finished show. And in the in the novelization, I was able to bring those elements back into it, um, and it felt it felt right for me to do it. And I think I, I think it works overall. Excellent. I won't go into what those things are because it would too much of a spoiler, I think. But I think I don't think people would be disappointed. I'm really looking forward to reading it. They're they're on the way. They've assured me they're on the way, but I just unfortunately didn't get them before the interview. Were you tempted to go like much bigger with the action and stuff? Yes, I think you know what I said it before that um, in television drama you're you're high bound by several things, mostly budget and what you can do within that budget. So you know you, there are scenes where you you want twenty thousand, and I suppose you can up to a point with CGI the way it is and computer animation. But on the whole, you've got to keep it. Yeah, I wrote it with my script editor's head on, of, of when I used to be a script editor, and um, I, I always thought about that. I would, let's not go too overboard with things. 
Whereas with the book, the only thing you're held back by is other limits of your own imagination. So it was, yeah, it was. I, I was tempted to go bigger, and I did. What What are the differences between being a writer and a script editor? Are you, are you being more objective rather than subjective? Well, a script editor, you know, a script editor has probably got a lot of um, a, an overall view of the of the series that the writer doesn't necessarily have. So the writer, the, the script editor is is really good at coming in and being objective and say, well, maybe if you cut back this 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 conversation here, because in another episode, this is this is going to happen. So it's uh, it's just that they have a bigger bigger view of the of the of the, of the picture, which whereas the writer just focused on you know their little aspect of it. I guess you probably had to adapt it to be more standalone because you don't know which episodes are going to get novelizations. So yeah. was that a challenge? Well. Not really. Um, I mean, apart from you know the, the bit at the end where the, 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 there's mention of the Doctor's future, possible future, um, it, it's pretty much standalone. And, and it's her first, it, it's Donna's first time on a, on a on another planet. But all those things, it doesn't really matter. I, I kind of thought of it as a self-contained episode anyway, so that 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 wasn't problematic. Sure. Did you get really nostalgic and like longing? For the summer's gone by of 2006, 2007? I, I did. I really, I had a lovely time of once, you know, they said, right, just go ahead, write the episode. Um, everybody on the show was very helpful, welcoming. Um, and, you know, I'd go down to Cardiff and have meetings, script meetings in Starbucks and the marina. It was all very kind of not laid back because that's uh, obviously that wasn't true. There was a heck of a lot that, that, that this, this, the, the production team were juggling with. Uh, but for me, they they made me feel relaxed. So it was, yeah, it was a lovely summer. It was hot like this, like it is now. So mm, yeah, it was a good time. Did you get to go inside the TARDIS and on the set and stuff? I did. I was shown around by um, I think one of the one of the runners, and it was it, they were they hadn't been using it, so it was all in darkness. And I was really, I loved the scale of it because it was big. It was a huge set. But I was quite shocked by how flimsy the TARDIS control console was. It was like, you know, put your finger in it, it could go through because some bits were sort of polystyrene-type material, um, and it looked a bit mucky and dusty. Um, so, yeah, scale fantastic, but the detail of it was, oh, gosh, it's not real at all. <laughs> I've broke a little bit of Matt Smith's TARDIS, not at all. Uh, and they were like, yeah, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And then we realised they were moving studios for the next series, so they were doing a whole complete new TARDIS. Oh, phew, that's a good thing. <laughs> the man who broke the TARDIS. <laughs> I also did a, at the same time, um, they were still filming Torchwood, so they showed me around the Torchwood sets, and they were spectacular, because oh. you know, they were high definition by then, which Doctor Who at that time wasn't. And um, gosh, they were, it was like, they were real buildings, real sets, they were fantastic. Well, that Torchwood hub is so impressive. I didn't get to go in it myself, but yeah, just the scale of it. They should do... Torchwood target novelizations. Yeah, they should. That's a brilliant idea. Were you a reader of the books? Oh, yes, I definitely was. Certainly from when I was when they first came out, um, you know, these these three came out. Um, I bought them. And actually I, I, I because they were sort of reprints from earlier editions by the Frederick Muller, um, I came across the Frederick Muller editions first just by looking in my school library and there were these wonderful hardback books. But when the new Target range came out in 1973, yes, I bought them and then started to, after that, avidly buy them when they they came out. And it was between about 1973 and 1976 in Newcastle, where I'm from. Um, it was very hit and miss, you know, bookshops, some stock Doctor Who books, some didn't. 
Um, but by the sort of towards the end of the mid and the, the late seventies, everybody had them. But my parents, my parents took me to the Doctor Who exhibition in nineteen seventy-five and said, "Okay, here's a treat. You can choose five um, five Target books from the, uh, the, the the gift shop at the end." And I was, "Oh, this is fantastic!" So uh, yeah, my collection did mount up between seventy-three and seventy-nine when I kind of stopped watching the program. Really, can you remember which ones you got? Well, I can remember all the books I got, and I can remember where I bought them from as well. I mean, how sad is that? <laughs> but I bought, yeah, I could tell you which ones I had. I had, um, do you want me to list them? Yeah, why not? Why not? Okay. 1973, I had the, the Daleks, the Zabi, the, um, the Cybermen, uh, sorry, the the, the Crusaders. Uh, the Crusaders is one of my favourites, I have to add. Um, and then... 1974 was a bit of a sporadic year because I just couldn't find any. But eventually, I bought um, the Sea Devils, the Abominable Snowmen, and the Demons from Thorne's Bookshop in, in, in Newcastle. And from 1976, when uh, we had this new indoor shopping centre called Eldon Square, which opened, Tom Baker uh, came to the WH Smith's Bookshop and I got his autograph and I got him to sign... Um, the Ice Warriors. So from '76, yeah, every every book that came out, I I, I was there. I bought it, and W. H. Smith stopped them all. And I joined, I, I joined, sorry, I joined the um, Target Little Book Club. You know where you oh, yeah. your badge. Have you managed to catch up with Tom Baker in the years since? Well, yes and no. Uh, he's one of the few people I've I've met since I started my career in television, who I'm still in awe of if, if, if ever I see him around. And I just, you know, in 1976, I could barely stutter my name to him when he asked it. And then in 1983, when I was a student in Norwich, I had a, a job in a in a restaurant. And who should be in Norwich in the restaurant one night but uh, Tom Baker and Dora Bryan, because they were in a play in um, the Norwich Theatre Royal. And I served him. And then he gave me his card to, you know, for it to pay the bill. And I remember thinking, yes, that's the same signature that I've got on Doctor Who and Warriors. But really, I, I, haven't, I haven't met him to talk to since then. It's bold that he uses the same signature. As- it is. <laughs> I really shouldn't say that, really. <laughs> so you've written for many different genres, um, including soap operas. And I imagine writing for a soap opera must be a minefield because you've got all these interconnected stories and characters and... How do you go about keeping that all straight in your head? I think because I started off in in um, soap opera as a as a script editor, I very quickly learned to juggle the number of storylines that that you have in 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 my head. Because obviously, I'd have meetings with writers and it'd say, "Well, actually, in two episodes' time, this is going to happen, so you can't do that, and you can't have this character reveal this." So, it, 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 I think just being by thrown into to the deep end. Um, as I was, that I, I learned very quickly how to how to do that. And I mean, put to, to now, I can't even remember my name sometimes or what day it is. But for a while, I was I had a very good mind where I could remember all sorts of things. I just imagine in the writer's room, there's probably like a massive whiteboard and it's just every story plot and how every character is related. Yeah, absolutely. And I used to love that whole thing of, um, because even though like a soap opera is, you know, 12 months of the year, you still kind of split them into seasons sometimes or, t- or periods of time, say three months. And I used to love that um, process of sitting down with other writers and um, script people with a huge whiteboard and say, okay, we've got 26 episodes to cover. What are we going to do? What are the big What are the big story arcs? And so that was kind of, sometimes it was, oh, this is fantastic because I'd like to do this. And other times it was, oh God, I haven't a clue. Oh, this is, <laughs> how are we going to do this? 
but it, yeah, the, the challenge of coming up with the stories is always an, an, an adrenaline rush. I remember hearing an interview with Jane Fallon, who used to work on EastEnders, mm. and she said that they had to scrap an entire storyline once because they realised there was nobody to look after a baby. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> How do you go about writing dialogue and keeping it like relatable and authentic? I think the thing to remember when you certainly when you're writing for for, for television is that dialogue is dialogue isn't real. You know, mm. dialogue is is a um, is a tool to give information to the to the to the viewer to the audience. So you have to strike a balance between giving some information and making it come across like normal conversation. Mm. That's and that's something that because I, I I have been teaching script writing and for the past few years, and that's something that's really difficult. To try and convey to, to students of, of script writing that it's it's a tool, um, but so it, it it takes the time to, to to kind of get into that sort of mindset of how to write dialogue. But once you once you can do it, it, it it's sort of there's no such thing as seeing it you know it writes itself, but it does become a bit easier. Is it difficult to balance exposition when you come to writing? Absolutely. Um, I think television's changed in the past few years and that it's become much more filmic. But there was a time when television was kind of um, an extension of, of, of theatre, um, and it's in this only fairly recently, really, that that changed. Um, so, dialogue writing now for television is 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 a lot different and a bit more practical in that you, you can you can use shorthand. You don't have to use too much exposition because you have a much more knowing audience these days. Sure. Do you prefer writing for any one genre or does it all just kind of scratch a different type of itch? Well, that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, I was going to say that, I, you know, since um, I, I've had my own novel published and I've had uh, uh, short stories that I love, um, I love prose writing, but actually I've just got back into writing for television and I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, it's, it's, I love, I love being scratched all over. <laughs> You mentioned that you've been teaching writing courses. What are some of the common mistakes new writers make in telling everything in in, in the first few minutes? Mm. It's 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 you have to be disciplined with yourself and and not actually treat your your viewer your audience like intelligent people that they are. Sure. It's sometimes you, writers tend to to sort of think, oh well, they they won't understand this, so I better better put this. Going back to exposition, I suppose. Uh, and yet you don't have to do that. But yeah, a lot of a lot of new students to, to script writing tend to just go blah in the first few minutes and just give everything away. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to write something now and I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that that balance. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll get that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you will. It's just you just yeah. keep on doing it and it, it becomes a sort of second nature to you. I think Russell T. Davis said that he'd rather his audience was um, confused for 20 minutes than bored for five. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't watch soap opera these days because I've just got too many other things to do. But when I have dipped in and out of it, I think what's where they fall down these days is that they're sort of two steps behind the writers and they are two steps behind the audience. Mm. That's, that's not a good position to be. You want to be as a writer. You want to be ahead of the audience to surprise them, to delight them. But when the writer, the, the audience can see what's coming, why should they continue to watch? So I think that's that. That's something that writers tend to sort of um, to forget sometimes. I I kind of wonder if the streaming model is having a negative effect on on the entertainment industry because 
every so often you'll hear an interview with someone it's like yeah we've made an eight hour movie and i always just think well you should have just written eight one hour episodes of television yeah is that yeah. something that you've noticed it is um there are some shows uh, because i mean yeah there are different models i suppose I, I, and this is my own opinion. The last season of um, Stranger Things was a bit laborious for me to watch because it just—I thought this could be told in like six episodes, really. It's, it's you know, instead of however many that, that there were. And I think that there's always the sort of urge to 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 go for more when actually less is sometimes better. Mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. I guess talking about Doctor Who again, Russell T. Mm. Davis is now back in charge. Would you jump at the opportunity to write a new episode? In the <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, I have had this conversation with myself and other people. Because like, my, my philosophy of my career is always like, just once you've done something, move on um, and never go back. And when I have gone back to things, it's never been the same. And I've not particularly enjoyed it because yeah, I, can't, I can't ever be the same. But certainly if Russell said, because I mean, Russell is just an absolute genius and whatever he touches is 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 is, is, is gold. Um, because he's you know a talented writer. So if he said, "Yeah, come along," would you like to do something? Of course, I'd say yes, most definitely. Is there any character that exists in the Doctor Who universe that you would like to give a spin-off to? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, I have to think about that one. Um, well, um, I was really um, amazed by uh, Bonnie Langford, but um, her character I, I'd never really kind of warmed to on on the show. But having heard some of the uh, big finish yeah. uh, stories that she was in, I thought there's there's some, some there's a character who uh, should do more. Um, I'd quite like to go back um, to earlier characters from the from the sort of the, the classic era of like William Hartnell that sort of thing. I thought I thought Susan. I I I, I don't know if they've done this because I'm not I don't, I don't tend to listen to audio. Uh, but but Susan was a really fascinating character. You know why why did she call the Doctor grandfather? Was 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 she really his granddaughter? All that all that stuff about you know now that we know about the Time Lords because they didn't in 1963 until 1969. Um, it would be quite interesting to to pursue that character and and see what she she could do. Or if Doctor Who launched today, mm -hmm. Susan would 100% get her own show. Oh God, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've not really touched on that in Big Finish. They they kind of focus on an older Susan. Mm -hmm. They don't really do much with the, the younger character. But yeah, that, yeah. that would be a fascinating way to go. Oh, I saw Duggan from City of Death. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bye-bye, Duggan. Yes. <laughs> have a gritty 70s set cop drama. Yeah, who just punches everybody when it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, this is probably a poison chalice question, but do you have a favorite doctor or does it change depending on circumstances? It sort of changes, but I, I grew up with, I started watching when John Pertwee became Doctor Who. So he was for you know, for five years, which was half my lifetime. He was Doctor Who. Um, and, and I was bereft and upset when he left, but then Tom Baker came on board and, and it was like, Oh, Tom Baker is, is the doctor. Um, so, uh, and having vi visited, you know, the, the the videos and then the the, the DVDs, some uh, sometimes William Hartnell's just amazing, as is um, Patrick Troughton. So um, I, I I can't say for definitely that I have one favourite Doctor, but uh, I love elements of all of them. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, mine mine changes depending on mood, depending yeah. on what I'm in the mood for. Some are darker, some are lighter. Yeah, uh, that's the great thing about this show is it reinvents itself every three to five years. It is. It's so clever. 
Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just genius. All right, Keith, you've been very generous with your time, and I know you've got a lot of these to do. So I'm going to thank you for joining me, and I'm going to say goodbye. Okay, thanks very much. Cheers. Take care. Okay, how great was that? I'd just like to thank BBC Books for arranging that interview with Keith. The new Target novelizations for Planet of the Ood, The Waters of Mars, Warriors Gate, and Zygon Invasion Inversion are due out on July the 13th. Next episode will be an interview with Phil Ford talking about his novelization of The Waters of Mars.